listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. I overheard a discussion today that I thought was so uh, so cool. A kid was talking about um, how he thought that New Year's was just the coolest of all the uh, holidays because of all of its potential. And you know, I'm just kind of totally this. You know, I'm having my cup of coffee. I'm just totally fly on the wall, just going, "This this is interesting." And uh, kind of continued and said, it's a chance to hit reset. <laughs> and it's kind of neat. I mean, if you think about it, here we have this arbitrary date that's kind of picked uh, where we literally do kind of, we just tick the clock. We have this agreed upon deal that, uh, okay, it's a new year now. And there comes this ritual, oftentimes a very quiet ritual that many of us will go through wherein we resolve to do something differently, to do something new, to engage this life in some capacity in a way that's different than we have done it before. Now, the most obvious uh, and clearly the most uh, exciting one of all is, well, I'm going to go to meditation more or something like that, or I'm going to exercise more, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be healthier. I'm going to be, all these, I think, actually are great. And as I was listening to, to their, uh, their conversation continue, I was uh, struck by uh, some words that an old teacher of mine in high school, old high school teacher, he said, uh, said, the only difference between the immature and the mature is resolve. And I remember as a you know, senior in high school kind of listening to that and going, what? What, is, what does he mean by that? And the more you kind of take your practice into whatever the next level is, the more you kind of begin to have that resolution, whether it's a New Year's resolution or it's one that you make every single day, is the more we grow up, is the more we mature, is also the more we expand. The difference between a child and an adult is resolve. And so the obvious question that this begs in each of us is where is our resolve and where is it focused now? And it can be anything. And indeed, maybe it is. You know what? I want to meditate more. 
great. I recommend, or actually recommend to everyone that uh, they incorporate some type of meditative awareness practice, some type of stillness practice into whatever New Year's resolution they have got. Right as I was starting out, I remember I had a teacher who, uh, <laughs> um, I was at this retreat and my whole thing was, at least at the beginning, beginning stages of my uh, uh, practice, I'm going to dabble a little bit here and a little bit there, and I, you know, I'm going to do this so that it feels right. And then, you know, if, if anything gets too intense, I can always back out. I could hedge my bets that way uh, on enlightenment or whatever, you know, just, eh, you know. Um, so, so I remember sitting there. It was uh, it was a, a a New Year's Day retreat, and I, of course, was one of those. Um, I would always sit in the front. So kind of like Michael or Gina or Joanne, welcome to the front. Yes. <laughs> so I'd always sit in the front, and uh, he was saying, here's the one thing I guarantee will fundamentally alter the rest of your life. And suddenly it was kind of from this to, mm? <laughs> I was all there. I was all there. And he said, double your practice. I was like, fuck. <laughs> Double my, I'm already sitting 45 minutes. This is bullshit. Oh, you know? And then, after I kind of went through the little temper tantrum that was calling my resolve into question, I realized, you know what? He's right. And I will admit, it changed my life. So it's probably no surprise to anybody in this room that I'm looking at all of you right now, naked, and I am saying, double your practice as best you can. Give it some fire. Watch what happens. It's pretty amazing. People have been doing this a long time. I am telling you nothing new. I don't know how many teachers of this Dharma have said exactly that, double your practice. I'm sure a thousand years ago, there was somebody sitting in, uh, what, suburban northern India uh, and saying, double your practice. And there was one student that's like, oh, fuck, you know? <laughs> Probably happened. There's nothing new. Nothing new being offered here. I promise I will never say anything that hasn't been said before in some way. There's nothing original about this, but it is a tried and true path. It is something that has been tested and tested and tested. The cool thing is we are the experiment. <coughs> and you get to really kind of examine this maturation process. You get to examine What's going on? What am I resisting? What do I feel comfortable embracing? What scares me to death? And you get to do it in a container called Sangha. And you get to do it with the backdrop of this thing called Dharma. And you get to continually 
live from that inspired big self place we call Buddha. You ready? So one of the colloquialisms we use in this teaching is we talk about the small and the big self, which is very similar to kind of what I was talking about, the, the immature and the mature, the child and the grown-up. Uh, the difference between the small self and the big self, we typically use the small self as a, a way of describing the ego. Now the ego is a charged term. Um, as many of you know, I've said this before, Freud actually never once used the term ego, a Latin term. He called it, of course, das ich, which means the I, which is kind of a cool spiritual term. But far be it from American academia to credit Freud with anything spiritual. Um, anyway, the, the point here is that we use the small self as a way of talking about that within our experience that is contracted, that needs to be defended, that needs to be right. It's gripped, okay? That's hiding. That's manipulating situations and things to keep it safe. That's what the small self is doing all the time. The big self, on the other hand, is a way that uh, Suzuki Roshi kind of came up with these two terms, and he was my teacher's teacher. He, was, uh, he used the big self as a way of saying, okay, you're still a self, but you are inspired, informed, and sourced from something that is without bound. Now, he never said that part there, but just so we're kind of clear. So an enlightened being is one who never moves away from the big self sensibilities. Someone who never is caught by the small self. They're no longer, as a Buddhist would say, blown around by the eight winds. And this gets to be very, very interesting when we start thinking about the eight winds. If you've ever met somebody that's grounded or that you find to be centered, uh, I keep thinking, whenever I say that, I keep thinking of weebles. <laughs> I've got little, I've got my baby uh, girl, she's 13 months old, and she will look at this, she's got a series of these little play toys that are uh, very heavy on the bottom. They're shaped kind of like eggs, they're oblong, and you knock them and they fall over and they come back. And they keep, <clears throat> weebles wobble, but they never... They never fall down. Thank you. Another child in the 70s. Rock on. Okay. So, you know, she'll just sit there and go, ha, 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 And she'll just keep doing that. And we may have to get her checked, but still, it's, it's somebody who is grounded is kind of in that divine spiritual weeble space when they are... Just stick with me. It's bizarre, but you get, you get the idea, I think, of what I'm talking about here. The, 
the sense that they are blown around, but they are always coming back to center. And what are these eight winds? Praise, blame, happiness, sadness, success, failure, pride, and shame. The small self is going to be absolutely taken off its rocker with these winds. Okay? And the big self is not moved at all. The big self recognizes praise. It recognizes blame. It recognizes sadness. It recognizes happiness. It recognizes all of this stuff. It sees success. It sees failure. But it's not just, you know, beaten up by the arising of one instead of the other. There's a dispassionate kind of, aha, wow, failure, as opposed to, damn, you know, oh, right? Small self is going to go to war over failure. I will not fail. Failure is not an option, <laughs> right? Okay. Now, this is kind of a cool thing. I mean, for us to have that kind of fire within us, we want to be proud. We want to be successful, okay? We want praise. We, all these things, right? Okay. Yeah. Ego loves all of that stuff. It's its juice. However, as we start engaging in a stillness practice, we start seeing that fighting for any of those positive wins, so to speak, generates suffering. And what did the Buddha say awakening was? The end of suffering. Enlightenment is the end of suffering. It doesn't mean it's the end of praise. It doesn't mean it's the end of pride or happiness. It doesn't mean it's the end of any of those things. It means that your relationship to it dies. And it's reborn as something that is far more expansive, much, if you will, bigger. So thinking of uh, your successes or your failures, thinking of your pride or your shame, your happiness, your sadness, those moments of praise or feelings of blame, becomes incredibly instructive because you start in that moment when you get really, really intimate with these experiences, okay, you start to get a real clear sense of small self. And when you will stand in the face of any of these winds without flinching, be they positive or negative, you start inhabiting this very body that we all have. You start living from that big self perspective. Real easy at this point for ego to co-op, come in the back door and co-op this whole experience and say, aha, 
I won't give a damn about anything. And that is delusion. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is having an open relationship to experience. So much so that we no longer get knocked. We're no longer suffering based on our preferences of success over failure. When failure comes, it's accepted. It's not tolerated. It's accepted. Radically. When blame comes our way, instead of becoming hyper-defensive and bringing out the brigades, we can take it. We learn from it. And then from a very still, big self space, we can respond generously and openly in whatever way is needed, whatever way is most helpful. What's also interesting about a stillness practice as we start to incorporate it, is we start recognizing how pride, shame, all of these actually, happiness, sadness, but, but pride and shame especially, start to melt a little bit. They start to become far less of an allure. We, we, we no longer feel like we have to be known for something. We no longer are bound by our pride. We don't cling to it. And we are no longer bound to our shame because we no longer avoid it. They show up. They're seen. They're welcomed. And this is so radical. This is such a radical approach to living that uh, most individuals... Um, their practice can dry up real quickly when, when they start to look at this squarely. And looking at it squarely, when we begin to really plumb the depths of experience, we start looking at exactly what's going on as it's going on. We meet things with presence. We start to begin to unravel some, some stuff. We start really kind of reevaluate what, what matters, what really does matter, and what doesn't matter. What's getting in our way? The old question that I offer up so often, you know, what is it that I need from others? When we start living as a spiritual weeble, <laughs> we start seeing that we don't really need anything from anyone. We become a receiver, a giver, and a gift all at once. And it's not that we're anything special. It's this ordinary divinity that we begin to kind of meet the world with. Deeply ordinary. <laughs> Radically normal. <laughs> arises from this space that's no longer caught in that dualism, a positive-negative, this non-dual approach, this singularity, this deep singularity, this deep openness that we kind of not only approach but we live from kind of consciously, we start recognizing that we're not living ever apart from this big self and we never have. But now 
we're actually consciously weaving it into the fabric of day-to-day -day life. Everything becomes a meditation. Whether it's making breakfast, making love, whether it's changing lanes, or in my case, changing diapers, it's all teaching. It's all teacher. It's all Buddha. It's all Christ. It's all the infinite dancing right in front of us. And we don't move from that. Enlightenment is the end of suffering, says the Buddha. There's no suffering when we're no longer clinging in a small self way to preference. When we're no longer attached. When we're no longer utterly avoiding attachments, which is a form of attachment. When we're just human beings rather than human doings. I'm trying to pull out all the spiritual cliches here. And, uh, <laughs> just trying to give them all and figure something will, it's like spaghetti on the wall, something's gonna hit, you know. So with this in mind, just as kind of a roadmap, this is just one of those little places on the, uh, on the road that you can you can kind of use as a marker. It's something that I'm hopeful, at least for the next week, you'll be able to practice with, okay? Looking at these eight wins, looking at your praise and desire for it, blame, your urge to get away from that, looking at your craving of success, your aversion of failure, being really alive to where you stand in relationship to pride, and shame, how much it defines you, how much the stories surrounding pride and shame may really actually serve as a small self anchor as opposed to a big self release. Looking at your happiness and your desire for happiness as being actually part of the reason that it's so elusive. Looking at your sadness and instead of having an open relationship to it, you have instead a relationship where you wish to avoid it at all costs with whatever pill can possibly keep us from experiencing it fully. All of these things, all of these things support the path. They support your work on the path. Every single one of them, every single moment is this precious opportunity for each and every single one of us to practice together with each other. You see someone who's caught in this stuff? What are you seeing? You're seeing an echo of your own experience. And sooner or later, you couple this with a stillness practice and you begin to see all things are me, and I am all things, all at once. 
Happy New Year. Heart and mind, also ego. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's actually really cool that you brought that up. I oftentimes will interchange mind with small self, right? Mm-hmm. Or mind and ego. You can also have big mind. Okay. You can also have big ego. Now, big ego, in the way that I'm using it here, isn't big ego as in um, I'm the greatest, or I, 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 I. That actually is a, a fairly pronounced, immature, small self, right? Um, you look at, I mean, in the way I'm using it, uh, all the spiritual heavyweights, they were all big egos, like, but like infinite egos, Right? In other words, they had incorporated this big self-awareness into small self-being in such a way it was woven so beautifully into the fabric of their being that they were able to actually change the course of history without having a 401k that was worth anything. Yeah? Thank you. Yeah. So um, I guess that's, that's kind of, that's a, it's a really, that's a point of clarification I'm glad you brought up, but does that, does that make a little more sense for you? It does, because I, if you're... Resolution is to be more mindful and things that you want to cling to. I go back and that word gets thrown around all the time. It does. So So it can get confused. So if you're being mindful, you are literally being a full mind. And a full mind is no longer a small mind. Cool. All right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, the length and frequency of daily sitting yeah. came up. Mm. And while there are some programs that talk about short moments repeated frequently, establish a sense of beingness versus one long sit, do you have a, a recommendation as to length of time that? qualitatively can make a difference? I do. I do, actually. Um, And this is, um, again, I think I would just say that this is part of the way, this is my pedagogy. This is the way I would teach it. Uh, But it's not for everyone. Uh, I happen to think that those small moments of mindfulness are utterly critical every day, whenever you can. Am I in an inhalation or an exhalation? Ask yourself that question. There's nothing that will catapult your awareness more than that simple question. Am I in an inhale or an exhale right now? And then once that happens, once that happens, exhale, peace. Inhale, love. And then go on with whatever you were doing, whoever you were beating up or whatever. But you, in that space, in that space, as much as you can during the day, that creates mindful mindfulness uh, that is sutured. By the way, you know the uh, Sanskrit word for suturing? Sutra. Very good. Okay. 
all right? You begin to sutra your life. Your life becomes a sutra, okay? I also, however, would ground those moments with a steady diet of meditation daily, at least six days a week and at least 30 minutes per pop. And if you can stomach it, you go from 30 to 40. That 30 to 40, you will find magic, almost always, okay? Especially after you've been doing it a while. You begin to drop in pretty quickly, but then there's something really neat that begins to happen. And I've talked to other long-time long meditators. In fact, some of you in this room have meditated longer than I've been alive probably, but uh, uh, who've been doing this a while. And they're like, yeah, there's some real juice in there. That's really this, this beautiful opportunity for release, even when there's deep pain. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think integrating and coupling both of those uh, establishes the very the very kind of practice that any of a, that would benefit any of us. Um, it is the shortcut. I mean, I say that a lot, but but meditation, uh, sitting still, is the shortcut for any and all of this, you know, chattering that I offer each week to kind of begin to to become not just real, but become the way. Just kind of happens, and it's been doing this, like I said, for. Hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not, it's not me. I have nothing for you. Except the recommendation that you meditate every single day for 40 minutes and then do that little mindful trick as best you can. But that's it. <laughs> yeah. We're just going to stick with this corner of the room tonight. That's okay. <laughs> Philip. That's okay. That's okay. Um, anger. Someone has anger and it's just coming at you pretty aggressively, vehemently. How do you work with it going through instead of sticking? Instead of sticking. So, like, instead of it becoming a wind that pushes you off center, you're, you can weebleize, so to speak? Actually, you, you hold some of it. Gets you. Mm. Yeah, you weeble, but you don't come back. You, but you don't come back. You stay down. <laughs> you will become a broken spiritual weeble. <laughs> yes. Well, my recommendation is, first of all, if we got underneath their anger, we would find fear. You can't be angry without fear. Okay? And so when you begin to recognize their anger is coming from a place of fear, it usually sparks, at least for a split second, a moment of compassion. They're afraid. Oh. Okay. Now, if it's sticking, it's actually a really kind of cool little egoic mechanism that is also afraid. Okay. And fear can only come from a sense of uh, uh, impending loss. They're coming at you with anger because they're afraid of losing something. You, it's sticking within you because you're afraid of losing something too. And so the deeper our practice actually becomes, the more we recognize we're not going to lose anything. There is nothing that will be lost that really matters, ultimately. And so as our practice deepens, 
their anger can't stick. And then we really frustrate them. Okay? But that frustration will show up in two ways. It'll either show up as an even greater intensity looking to get us, or it will start to recognize itself. They start to recognize their own unconsciousness when we become more conscious. When we uh, uh, have a response that actually is, uh, uh, celebrates, if you will, our unconsciousness, and it meets theirs, and our unconsciousness starts to slam dance with theirs, what do we get? Suffering. But on the other hand, when we are in a space, when we can allow their anger quite literally, I mean, it's not like we work to let it go through us. It goes through us as our awareness begins to expand, as our, as, as our opening begins to occur. The, the, the weeble, if you will, f props itself back up without any effort at all. Yeah. This will work as well. Of course. Of course. Now, there's another layer to this, which is what's the appropriate response when somebody just keeps venting? And sometimes that let go, letting go sounds like, oh, uh, I have to go floss my cat. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, putting yourself in situations where you are becoming a punching bag as a way of testing your mindfulness. You know, I mean, it's, that doesn't help them necessarily. It might, it might. And again, one of the great disasters, one of the great disservices we could do is put ourselves in front of someone's anger so that we can be their punching bag so that then we can have an opportunity. Now I'm going to give you some dharma, okay? That doesn't help anybody. You walk the talk first, and then all the stuff kind of takes care of itself. It begins to literally go through us, and we don't get blown off center. Whether, you know, we, we, their praise or blame or our shame or, or sadness or happiness, whatever it is, it, it becomes utterly superfluous to the simple elemental experience of being. Good luck. Good luck to all of you. Mm -hmm.